This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of New Books Now Network Podcast. I'm Matthew Gagne, and today I'm talking to Hatem El-Hibri about his new book, Visions of Beirut, The Urban Life of Media Infrastructure, published by Duke University Press. He's currently Assistant Professor of Film and Media Studies at George Mason University. Welcome, Hatem. Thank you, Matthew. It's great to be here with you. My pleasure, too. So Visions of Beirut is a text that explores how the creation and circulation of images have shaped the urban spaces and cultural imaginaries of Beirut. The book traces how the technologies and media infrastructure that visualize the city are used to consolidate and destabilize regimes of power. It's a wonderful account, in my opinion, of how visual materials are implicated in the production of Beirut and even how those visual relations um, are concealed, right? as attempts to be undetected within visual fields that still constitute a set of productive relations that go into making the city what it is. Um, And so that's just a little overview. So I just want to start here by thinking uh, a little bit more broadly about the book. So can you tell me the story of the book? Like what, what sort of, what was the impetus to write it? Yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to, you know, I can start out sort of very generally and then there's like a specific, um, a moment where I, where I came to the idea for this book in particular. So I've, I've kind of always been interested in uh, media and its relationship to space, how it is that media technology of various kinds becomes bound up in a process of circulation, how and why it is, uh, how and why uh, we look at landscapes the way that they are, how visual relations become social relations. I've also been always interested in what that has to do with power how and where particularly visual technologies become useful to uh, regimes of power. The more the, the reason why I'm interested in that isn't because I think power is great, but because how power actually functions with when we look at the materiality of its techniques appears much more contingent. How and where media, images, space come together appears much more potentially frail. We can We start to see how there's a politics of visuality that that visuality comes without the guarantees and certainties that power accords to itself that it authorizes to itself more specifically like how i came to so that's like the like the broad backdrop of things i'm kind of always obsessed with and thinking about there's a particular episode that led me to this book this was the first semester i'd finished in uh uh, doctoral uh, classes was the december of 2006 I go back to Beirut to visit family, who I would quite regularly. At the time, everywhere on the news, uh, the biggest uh, 
item was Hezbollah's organized sit-in protest in so-called downtown Beirut, uh, the area that was polished and redeveloped in the post-war period and closest to parliament uh, and so on. So the enterprising graduate student that I was, I'm like, I got to go see what's going on with this. So what was ordinarily this heavily policed, very tightly controlled part of the city had been turned over into uh, a street fair. Uh, not not quite the same energy as a protest because this was a sit-in demonstration at the time. Eventually, this turned into like an 18-month sit-in demonstration. When I went, and it was, was like the first three weeks of the protest, there were thousands and thousands of people everywhere and street vendors selling popcorn and memorabilia and uh, every item that you could think of. And I also noticed that at certain key places in Martyr Square, Sehat al-Shahada, and the Riyadh al-Sarah Square, near Parliament, you had these large projection screens and a stage, the kind of stage that you would have for performances and speeches. And I noticed that at certain moments, what was playing on that screen was Al-Manar, Hezbollah's satellite TV channel. And then I noticed something really curious, that there was live coverage of the protest playing at the protest. Started looking around, and I could buy. I was I was eventually able to spot the lights of the camera crew, which was then projecting onto the screen. So I said, "Okay, that's curious and you know weird. Maybe to see the mise en abîme appear in front of you, where an image contains its own. An image appears within its own frame. Um, that circularity seems curious. But I thought to myself, but actually, there's something happening here." There's something in the relationship between embodied mobility and the spaces of the city and visual circulation. And if we were then to also factor in how images also become useful to the production of space, I thought to myself, if I can get a historical line on how this works in the contemporary moment, I'll have understood something about not just this moment, but uh, something about the politics of the city much more profoundly. I'd have a much closer, maybe humbler account of the relationship of media to power. Great. So I have, I have a couple of follow-up questions, actually. So, you know, thinking about that relationship of media to power and the idea of visual circulation, right? I, I find that really interesting. And I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit more about how you conceive of that relationship between um, visual and power, especially because it always seemed to me that what you're not talking about are visuals as a tool of power, sort of like things that regimes of power use to exert their power, nor the visual as representations of power. Do you know what I mean? That That's the impression that I got reading the book. Um, and I'm wondering if, you know, if you agree or disagree with that and how then we can think about the visual and power differently than from tool or representation. Yeah, so that's... I. I that's a really great question. Oftentimes when people talk about images or media, they reduce uh, the social world of the image to the intention, to the conscious intentions of uh, a, a person, actor, or institution which produced it, which usually in this, in this account are read directly off of the image itself in a hermeneutic exercise, which presumably we can deduce the, the, the purpose of actor. Um, and I am interested in how and where 
power thinks images will solve its problems, but I don't assume that the outcome is, is guaranteed from the outset. I'm actually really invested in showing how that's not always the case. That mapping the city is a contingent process, for example, that uh, the broadcast is not guaranteed to arrive, even if oftentimes how we relate to TV is this, pre- is this presence that's a part of the everyday that recedes into the background that just plays while we're cooking or doing something else. I think that when we look at um, the, the second major thing that you mentioned is power and its re- and representation that the study of media or the study of TV is primarily something to do with the imaginary. It's primarily a process of the formation of common sense, uh, is looking at how ideology operates, or conversely, how it is that people relate to those images. How do people feel about certain types of images? All of, all of these are very important projects, and there's prodigious research which it looks into them from a variety of perspectives, some more social scientific, some drawing from uh, critical theoretical traditions in the humanities. Personally, I feel I'm somewhere lost in between those two. What I wanted to do with this book, though, since I have so many colleagues who, who work on those questions in really fascinating ways, the thing that I wanted to contribute was a sense of those images as understood from the mediatic process itself. I wanted to look at the infrastructures which circulated. To go back to that night in downtown Beirut, I wanted to understood. I wanted to understand the broadcast itself and how it moves images. That the act of circulation is not automatic and guaranteed, but is actually potentially maybe very grounded in particular infrastructural conditions, which itself tells us something about the texture of everyday life of the city, which tells us something about patterns of attention, which tells us something about the attunement of the body to the, to the spaces around it. Power is a very important part of the story, but it's not the only one. Great. Thank you. So um, can you tell us a little bit about the kinds of political histories and issues in Beirut and the region that your book seeks to address? Part of my concern is to think about the aftermath of colonial governmentalities and the inheritance that the Lebanese state itself draws from. And this is at the level of the management of the social as understood as the management of space. So the idea that by shaping the city and managing uh, the city, you are managing the social, the economic, and so on. So I, I look at this continuity between those two. I'm also really interested in the social systems of neoliberalism in this conjunction of the roaring 1990s, how they play out in a place like Lebanon, particularly because I want to understand uh, not how some more universal, coherent unit like neoliberalism with a capital N plays out in some local specificity, but actually the other way around. I want to see how the particularities of Lebanon allow us to understand um, regional and global uh, political structures and how they play out. I want to question the, uh, the linkings of different types of social institutions and their relationship to different financial regimes, for example. I'm also sort of in general very concerned to make sense of the incoherences that violence seeks to naturalize. Those, those ways that the, that the histories of violence, which give shape to a system like sectarianism, which give shape to 
which is to say gives shape to capitalism as it exists in Lebanon. I want to see how they play out in the archive. I want to see how they play out in the, the paper traces that are left behind. I'm interested to see how and where the relationship between the text in the city and the infrastructure which connects them and exists within that city uh, don't necessarily naturalize what, uh, what violence does, but do embed it into that life of the city. Great. Thank you. And who was the imagined audience and how do you want them to relate to the book? As a person trained in a interdisciplinary approach to media studies and visual culture studies, who somewhere along the line became really interested in urban studies, but who also was working on the Middle East, I kind of hope I, I was hoping that people in all three of those fields, urban studies, Middle East studies, media studies, very broadly understood, um, would pick up this book. Um, beyond that, I also imagine friends, colleagues, even family members people generally interested in Beirut in particular would pick up this book. Um, and I was, and I wanted to uh, very concretely make a contribution to existing debates in visual culture studies and the study of media infrastructure. One of the things that I propose, for example, in the book is that we take an infrastructural approach to visual culture, uh, both bro- potentially broadening the types of objects of study which we might have, but also the disposition we might take towards uh, images. If we think about images in terms of their infrastructure, we're focusing on uh, a social world surrounding the creation, sharing, and circulation of images. Uh, To focus on the spaces of the city is to think about uh, embodied social beings in the the spaces of the city, the differential uh, relations they take to it. we also might consider other types of visual practices, which do not always accord with the grammars that we have for thinking. Like oftentimes people are very good at talking about spectacle, what it is that spectacle does in modernity, for example. People are also of a different uh, political inclination, quite good at talking about surveillance, what it is that is happening with the tools of surveillance, remote sensing, drone cams, the view from above. But when you look closely at infrastructure in places like Lebanon, as, you, as it is in what is sometimes called the global south, infrastructure isn't, can't be assumed to always be on and always functioning. There aren't just uh, gaps in the view from above, but there's actually embedded routines of, of fakery and evasion, hiding and without getting too far ahead of myself, there are practices of concealment, visual attempts to remain hidden from view, which come to define the visual field that surrounds us, that's all around us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to get to that part. Um, But before we begin, let's establish uh, some sort of shared, um, you know, uh, uh, some understanding of the basic arguments of the text. can you give us a sense of uh, who the actors are in your text? Who are the, the main actors and the main materials that you deal with? Yeah, so that initial prompt that I mentioned, you know, how can I understand this particular moment in 2006? Uh, there was a few ways that I went about doing that. One was to look at uh, a history of 
mapping and urban planning and the aerial photographs, which come to be quite important to both of those practices in the 20th century. So there's a chapter which looks at what I call the social life of maps. Um, specifically, I do this only using archives in the city of Beirut. There's a way to tell this story by looking at archives all around the world, potentially. Uh, CIA archives here in the U.S., in the National Archives. In France, there's uh, archives to go visit there. You could potentially trace a story to French colonial officials who were brought in from North Africa and looking at what they did on the other side of the pond, in this case, the other side of the Mediterranean. By looking only at archives in Beirut and maps of Beirut in Beirut, we get a sense of the gaps and destructions and the plot holes that shape the lives of the maps more concretely. I want to think about the maps as part of the life of the city, but seen from the perspective of the life of the maps. Some of the actors here are pretty well known uh, to those interested, those who know about the history of urban planning in Beirut, uh, French officials like Camille Durafour or Michel Ecouchard um, or Ernst Egli, but also people uh, familiar with the damage assessment exercises, uh, which happened during the Civil War, uh, organizations like IORF. Uh, uh, there's a lot of continuity between the French and the uh, independent Lebanese period, right? not just French officials who come back as consultants, but the people who trained uh, during the mandate become like the main cartographers in the, in the period thereafter. The technologies change across this period, and it's one part of the story that I get. The post-war period looks at uh, a different set of questions, right? Not, necess- not just how were images used in the attempts to plan and shape and define the city, which even during the moment of the high point of French colonies of, of the French mandate weren't quite assured, weren't always assured. I tried to look instead at how images became useful to actually quite effective attempts to shape the city in this post-war moment. The types of images that were used to uh, create new financial circuitries tied to the future of, of the space. I'm sure we'll, we'll talk in greater detail about what I call images of before after and the idealized spectator of the citizen investor for whom they were intended. The second part of the book kind of shifts gear, right? Uh, Instead of thinking about colonial governmentality or neoliberal finance and its relationship to uh, urban transformation, instead of thinking about those types of images, uh, cartographic and cinematic, I shift to thinking about live-mediated simultaneities. The big shift happens, as, a, as you encountered, I'm sure, is that chapter which looks at the 2006 war and has a live broadcasts during it, which isn't just, which isn't primarily just concerned with Almanar's coverage of the war, but looking at practices of concealment alongside things like drone surveillance and live broadcasts from embedded hidden camera crews from the front line and how all of these different vectors end up coming together, and why we need concealment to make sense of a media event like that. The last chapter looks at the Hezbollah's Museum of the Resistance, not just a comment on institutionalized memory or new tourist economies, but more specifically to clarify something about concealment as well. Because what happens at 
the Hezbollah Museum is that a facsimile or a recreation or a simulation of concealment is replayed for a global audience, not presumed to be party faithful, um, and specifically to uh, to try to secure a very particular relationship to the nation and to uh, its its contemporary fracture, fractures and fall lines. Um, that's the, the, the main through line of the book. It, um, and well, now, although each, each of these chapters are, are certainly connected, although, even if looking at somewhat uh, diff- distinct um, sets of actors, institutional, uh, different political moments, and, and the political stakes are quite different in these different moments, um, there's a through line here that comments on the nature, nature of media infrastructure and the politics of visuality. Um, which I think we best get at when we when we come at it from in a in a historical sense of the present, and uh, with a sense of the real contingencies in each of these moments. Do you want to say a little bit more about about that before we move on to concealment? Yeah. So when people who study Lebanon will often tell you that a lot of our normative assumptions about what the state is or what uh, financialization are, or how national or how nationalism operate. Um, that these are uh, riven by contradictions everywhere, but contradictions which become immediately apparent and even appear in like a, a more advanced, morbid state in Lebanon. Right? Things uh, break down or things cleave in a somewhat different way when you have geopolitical cleavages that make it so political sovereignty doesn't work. The way it does, according to like normative liberal theories of what of how they should, right? Um, similarly, with infrastructure, right? Our sense of what infrastructure is is often defined from the assumption that, much like modernity, that there there is a light which is always on, and if the light goes out, then it's a sign that something catastrophic and unexpected has happened. And that moment of technological breakdown makes us aware of how everyday life and even the human sensorium are defined by a set of socio-technical systems which have fate, which have receded from our awareness or even perhaps our ability to to grasp and understand them. When you look from Lebanon, from partially lit streets or totally dark ones like we have now across Beirut, infrastructure appears always incomplete perhaps incompletable by definition. That incompleteness is at like the heart of my book. I begin from the assumption of incompleteness, that uh, infrastructure needs repair and maintenance sometimes before it's even finished being built, before they cut the ribbon saying this infrastructure is now available, the telecom grid is now available. It's always already in in a partial state of disarray, that it never quite fades into the background in places like Lebanon. Catastrophe is not abnormality, but some, but is actually uh, in, in some sense already part of the everyday. Infrastructure becomes invisible not because we forget that it's there, but because it's deliberately hidden, or because or infrastructure becomes bound up in practices of concealment, of actively hiding, of actively hiding like guerrilla fighters from uh, Israeli defense forces surveillance uh, techniques. Um, those things make it so that we come to, I think, a a very, a much more sharp understanding 
of like what a TV broadcast is. If we assume normatively that a TV broadcast is uh, uh, CBS or BBC, that always dependable part of our everyday, that's what that is in, in some sense a, a notion of what a TV broadcast is. It's very different when you begin from the very fraught position that like Amanat has in in a domestic sphere, which they are one of many speakers, and in an even more fraught global media landscape. Come to, we come to a very different understanding of what visuality and tuning in are. But anyway, I might be getting ahead of myself now. So, um, you know, one of the things I love about the book is the the theory of concealment that you put forward, right? And particularly how it's tied to um, thinking sort of... Th- shifting thinking about infrastructure away from its materiality, although that never quite disappears, but thinking of infrastructure as a series of relations, right? And how infrastructure brings up the visual as a series of relations. And embedded in the visual is the production of a series of relations. And what I love about the idea of concealment is that concealment is not, like the visual always attempts to make things known, to sort of make things circulatable um and the absence of that isn't nothing it's concealment which itself is still the production of a relation like it's still the production of a relationship um so the visual isn't sort of going away and becoming nothing uh therefore the absence of a relationship but that it's the concealment is that mode of having the visual hidden but still part of the sort of relational, like the production of a relational net. Yeah. I mean, this, uh, that's really close. That's, that's very close to my heart, which is what you just said. The visual is a set of social relations. There's an old argument, which WJT Mitchell made a long time ago, which different people have taken up in very different theoretical um, approaches. He said, people have talked about the social construction of the visual He's like, what we need to think about is the visual construction of the social. And I take that very seriously. And I take that uh, to mean that we need to understand our social political realities when and where they become highly aestheticized. The visual being only one particular uh, dimension, although of course in the actual world, it's never actually separatable from other technological, cultural, or sensory forms. Um, Part of what I've, I've tried to get at with this idea of concealment, I, maybe I should say a bit more, you know, when I say the word concealment, I mean a visual practice of remaining deliberately unseen or not seen to an opposing force. I'm thinking about a highly selective communicative mode, which, if it succeeds, leaves no trace, designed from perhaps a lingering paranoia in the conceal that maybe they were seen. It is not primarily something that you find in a film, not primarily something that you find represented. It is anti-representation. It is deliberate hiddenness. Now, the funny thing about concealment is that like guerrilla, if, if concealment is when a guerrilla fighter using a combination of techniques such as camouflage, uh, heat signature masking, uh, codes of silence and social engineering so that nobody knows uh, where usually he is hidden in the field. If that, is, if when he remains undetected, he is concealed. Um, 
that, that is not to say that the only thing that happens with concealment is that that person remains hidden. That hidden guerrilla fighter oftentimes has had a camera crew alongside. The camera crew must remain hidden lest they become targetable by the, heli- by the helicopter or the drone. But what they might be doing is broadcasting live footage back to uh, a transmitter. Concealment can enable spectacle. Concealment can become the condition of possibility of infrastructural functioning. I think that's kind of always true, but in a way that is becomes dramatically apparent in something like the 2006 war, where you have not one infrastructure, but at least two different infrastructures in conflict with each other. You don't just have the TV broadcast isolated from any other set of social relations or political relations. It's one of me- one amongst many. This is one of the, one of the greatest tricks I think that modern systems of sovereignty pulled off is they made us imagine that there's actually only one uh, set of of political relations, and that it is that which is which power has told us is the case. That this that is it is the state and its citizenry. That's the perspective of power. But of course, it's if you are surprised by the revolution. It's because you were always already blinded to the currents which made it possible. This is an old Marxist insight. This isn't necessarily like me being super smart. <laughs> um, anyway, so there's the concealment ties together the aesthetic, the political, and the social relations which underpin it. Concealment, I, I really need to stress this, is should not be equated with something normatively positive. Like we normally think resistance is like a very good thing. It's the powerless striking back and attaining agency and acting on conditions not of their making. Concealment is already part of what power in the state do, right? Uh, has like, do, like when I try to, when I'm trying to think about Hezbollah in the second half of this book, it's because I want to understand power because I want to understand what the bare knuckle enforcers of the status quo are doing, right? Perhaps Queer subjects and the marginalized and the displaced employ concealment to hide from uh, those who would do them harm. But it's also potentially uh, the plainclothes cop, the surveillance camera, uh, and other techniques of seeing uh, that are being applied to them. I just want to give us. I just want to give a, a clearer sense of that social terrain, that visual terrain on which we're operating, which concealment is already folded into even if we've oftentimes forgotten that we should be paying attention to it. Mm -hmm. Now, can concealment be extended beyond just um, oppositionality? Like, is it always that we're trying to conceal ourselves from someone who is sort of in contrast to us, you know, threat to us? You know, uh, the the source material that I use for in this book Mm -hmm. is a war. And this is perhaps one of the limitations of this is that uh, there, there is probably a, a wide range of situations where concealment of some kind is taking place, but which aren't marked by the hypermasculinism, technological sophistication of militaries and uh, life and death stakes, right? This is like a, maybe like the high drama of, of concealment is what, is what I'm, was what I'm serving up in, in this. Um, I'm also kind of limited in what I talk about in that I talk about like a, a primarily visual dimension. 
I don't know that it's necessarily always oppositional, but there is a kind of antagonism, I think, inherent to concealment. People don't like truly seek out concealment unless they feel there's something really at stake in being seen, in being found out, in being discovered. Systems of secrecy aren't just fun, although they can be quite fun, right? Concealment is usually like, oh, there's like, if I get spotted, I'm going to get beat up. If I get spotted doing what I'm doing, I'm not going to be able to get away with uh, this food that I just stole from the grocery store. I mean, at stake for me was definitely a word as you that came to mind, because I think even as something as banal as an office place, like if I get caught taking a long lunch, I might be reprimanded. I mean, that's not a context of, you know, oppositional forces, but there's something at stake. Yeah, certainly there's a, a range of ways that quite banal like concealment can be quite banal, right? Uh, there's, there's a range of different types of stakes and types of concealment which might take place. The kinds that I'm talking about here, for example, are not uh, ways of moving through the city and passing as cis and straight, for example, which has a different set of... Uh, of, of techniques. Going stealth is one thing, but it, but it, how and where it operates is, is quite different. Mm-hmm. I'm talking in, in this, in the case of, in my, in my book, less about interpersonal styles and those, ki- those, those primarily um, like keeping people in the know or out of the know techniques, which are always part of concealment, right? Concealment is never, is, is rarely, actual actually totally being totally cut off and undetectable or truly nobody knows although sometimes it is that it's usually there are people who know who you are and where you are there is somebody who knows where the weapons cache is there is somebody who knows um, that if they have to go to this building and look in this cupboard to find the concealed uh, thing but this is, but again, this is where I try to, at least in the book, set up a way of thinking expansively about concealment as a set of provocations, uh, as a set of things that I hope other scholars will pick up and expand beyond, like what I can do in just this one book. Like I really hope sound study scholars come and say, here's what, here's how we would have to think of concealment differently, were we to think more closely about like soundproofing, sonic masking. Um, and all of the other kinds of uh, audible dimensions of concealment or how and where uh, you can hear the sound but not un- not quite understand its source and the kinds of obfus- spatial obfuscation uh, that go in that way. I'm not sure if that answers the question. <laughs> that does. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah it totally does. Um, so while this isn't an ethnography, I certainly, as an anthropologist, honed in on some moments of ethnographic significance. And, you know, for example, you have a brief moment when you talk about looking uh, looking as a social and cultural practice, um, perhaps even to the extent that we are conditioned to see things by society and cultural relations of power. Um, and I can see how the production of these visual forms were also um, the production of ways of seeing Beirut. Uh, right, especially when you're analyzing the cadastral maps, it very much is about how um, different regimes of power, you know, literal sort of like um, the the budding state and the colonial state are sort of trying to physically map out the 
the city through new kinds of capitalist relations that are that are um, that they're trying to sort of bring in. Um, and that through those visualizations, people are being taught how to see the city, right? How to see this, even the physical city. Um, and I'm just curious, how do you think that those ways of seeing might have impacted people's everyday relations in the city, if, if at all? This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. You know, I think all of this, even though this project is not primarily ethnographic in its, in its method or, or its approach, um, all of this project is impacted by walking the city, which is something that I did quite deliberately, uh, as well as aimlessly to try to destabilize my own habituations. Uh, it's this project and its impulses are, is shaped by wondering how the movements and habituations, um, of the, of our, our, our very contemporary, uh, present city and its forces and tensions are shaped by the past. I think most people know that the city in everyday life is impacted by a kind of political cantonization and clientelism, right? And they also know that like the broadcast airwaves and the media landscape are similarly shaped by like local power sharing and its imbrication in regional and global power games. Um, so my, my text is, might not be, eth- my book might not be ethnographic in the sense of spending time with how people live with media or seeing how it is that people uh, like looking at practices of mobility in the city. Instead, what I, what I'm, what my book aims to give is a sense of the texture and the vectors of the relations of seeing that are part and parcel of the city. Right. I, I think less about concealment as an everyday practice uh, for many people. Uh, I, I'm like, I'm thinking about like militarized targets. I'm thinking about, um, the ways of seeing the city that emerge out of the needs of finance and the state in this post-war moment, and then become eventually like a gradually more diffused common sense way of thinking about the world, these images of before, after. Once you start to, maybe this is because I wrote this book, but I I see images of before, after in almost everything now. It seems to be almost the only way people can think about the city in terms of a future is what kind of real estate investment can this attract and how will this play, especially to a diasporic and global audience? And I, I, the, my text might not be an ethnography, despite my deep reverence for and appreciation for ethnographic work, but it definitely is, and I, and I try to keep this in, in mind in, in the book, it's, it's very defined by like, my own relationship to the city which is like many people, you know, who spent most of their lives outside. It's defined by episodic periodic visits, apart from say the three years that I was at the American University of Beirut, 2014 to 2017, defined by being a Beiruti in, in my family, in my, and in my family life. Hebris are from Beirut, very Sunni middle-class, uh, and it's this man, this really defines what kinds of access I got, what kind of interviews I got. It might not be ethnographic 
but I do, you know, spend some time talking with journalists and newspaper editors and uh, urban planners and architects and GIS engineers and and mm-hmm. and finance professionals in certain cases. Um, mm-hmm. So there is there is that dimension, and that's really thoroughly defined by like who I am or or who people assume me to be. The most ethnographic part of this book would be the time I spent at the Nita Museum, which I visited repeatedly between 2010 and 2017 for the writing of this book. Um, and that's where, although perhaps my methodological inclinations might be sort of textual and archival, maybe selected deep interviews, um, but to make sense of the Nita Museum meant taking seriously uh, a, a sense of the work on the senses that happens at the space because this, because the museum itself is premised on an embodied pedagogy about experiencing this, this place, which was a, which was a militia bunker during the fight against Israel. Um, when Hezbollah was like an active military operation, trying to push the IDF out of the Southern part of the country, which Israel occupied. And so they turn what used to be an underground bunker into this, site for like a war memorial slash, you know, museum of the recent past, right? And it's premised on like a physical embodied relationship to the site, to physical difficulty, walking up and down its mountainside, to a simulation of concealment. They want you to feel what it's like to be hiding under tree cover, to go into an underground bunker, to experience concealment when it actually existed, uh, where it once existed, uh, for real. Mm-hmm. Great. So let's let's sort of jump back a couple sentences and tell me tell me a bit more about the you know the before after imagery um, that you the idea that you develop around the before and after imagery in the context of Beirut of documenting the power of documenting the um, the images before the war and then after the war and the sort of the politics of imagery of rubble and, you know, and destruction and how that has such a provocative um, impact on what the city now is, right? And how people live in the city and even how I experienced the city when I lived there. It, those before and after pictures, you know, they're so palpable to the, the, the everyday life of the city in so many ways. You know, there are, there are a few things that uh, make me angry as a researcher as missed or lost potentialities. Moments when things could have been less awful, right? And the reason why I, I, I'm using like a, like a very affective term that fills me with anger isn't just because I feel helpless in the face of uh, bad actors and bad decisions, um, but because they now seem to be impossible to, it now seems impossible that they could have been otherwise. Too many people, it doesn't seem like things could have been otherwise or even that there ever once was even deceived to this. Images of, when people think about images of war, they oftentimes imagine a image of here's what it looked like before the war happened and now look at it. And there's this kind of uh, mournful, uh, relationship to uh, an idealized past. But the thing, so there's two problematic ways of thinking about war images and ruination that I think miss the mark here. The first is the, tip- the typical uh, liberal response, which is the problem is that most people 
have refused to learn the lessons of the war. And because they, because they're not like emotionally bold enough to like remember the war properly, they're forgetting it. And so like artists and thinkers have to remind them of the realities of the war so that we don't repeat mistakes of the past. And this seems to me completely off base. Anybody who thinks like this has never actually spent time with people who actually lived during the war. When people don't talk about the war, it's not because they're not remembering it. It's because the, the, the relationship between language and experience is much more vexed, or maybe it's just really unpleasant. Trauma is not the inability to remember, it's the inability to stop remembering, particularly the people who think in this, in this liberal sense of people are forgetting the war. They use the word, they use trauma talk to talk about it, which overwrites actually traumatic experience. The second way people talk about uh, uh, images of before after is like, so, so we have the before, uh, before destruction, after destruction. Images of before after in the sense I want to talk about them are before construction and after construction. This is where uh, we get screwed. This is where the really insidious stuff happens. Before and after is, in, in the way that I talk about it in this chapter, is in, here is the war-torn landscape. Here's what it will be when we fix it. I, I didn't want to write a chapter that's centered around Solidaire because people oftentimes will, will try to reduce the complexity of the post-war moment to like just Solidaire, right? And there's, it's not even, the, and then that somehow becomes like the logic of the city writ large. And if anything, it's the unevenness between Solidaire and even 100 feet outside of its perimeter that actually defines its city. So you're not going to get much if you just focus on Solidaire. So I focus, so I focus on it advisedly to pay attention to a set of contradictions that become built into the economic and social fabric of the city. Before and after becomes a way to promise investors that if you invest in a war-damaged city, it will be a good and sound investment, that you will make money by putting money into post-war construction. I really assiduously avoid the language of reconstruction, rebuilt, remade, because I feel that this scrambles the temporalities that are at work. The before-after image is one which reworks people's sense of time, which reworks our relationship to the city as a set of visual relations and specifically one that is compatible with the needs of global finance capital, which turns out to be global finance capital as partnered to specific elite business interests, in this case, centered around Tafit Hariri, who also at the time, in the post-war moment, was like literally just purchasing the state, right? Just buying off parliament, making deals with uh, the existing uh, warlords, in, in close partnership with people who we now imagine post-2005 to be like his bitter, would have been his bitter enemies. Um, Solidaire mobilizes the before-after image for a, uh, a type of spectator that I call the citizen investor. The citizen investor need not hold citizenship, nor necessarily have money to invest financially. Affective investment is just as good. Actually, it's oftentimes on the, on the intertwining of an affective relationship to space that financial wizardry comes to operate, Right? It becomes like a chicken and egg argument. Investing in, in Solidaire is a wise investment because the post-war boom is, is coming and this will be a site of, of valuation. Conversely, the reason for 
the post-war boom is going to be because of Solidaire. In another moment, they'll also say Solidaire itself is going to have like create like this economic boom because of how it will create a demand for construction materials and jobs and all of this stuff. It will create like this kind of economic ripple effect. All of that, of course, must now seem just like com- like complete fantasy to from the perspective of 2021, right? Uh, Solidaire is ghost town. People who lived uh, the the no man's land period of the Civil War who go walk there now tell me that when they walk there now, they find themselves looking over their shoulder to see are there snipers because it reminds them of the Civil War. But the logic of the before-after image and the logic of Solidaire and the entire political system embeds ruination at the heart of the economy, or at least the f- uh, at least it embeds, if not an actual process of ruins and, rub- and rubble, at least the threat of ruins and rubble. Without us, you have rubble and a return to the war. Without us, there there is nothing. Without us, you will return to the abyss. Right. And- so. I, I find this line of thought so provocative, even for thinking about the future from what from the context of what is happening in Lebanon now, right? The 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 process of destruction that's been happening through the financial crisis, through the uh, August fourth bombing, through COVID, it, it it's been, it you know in some ways it, it I don't know it, it's just an intense um, period of sort of things falling apart and what's left in its wake is not necessarily rubble, but it's still destruction in the same, in a sort of similar sense. Right. And I'm curious based on your analysis of the before and after, and as you say, how this had placed rubble sort of at the center of the state um, as a sort of node of relation, do you, how do you see this cycle uh, you know, this potential cycle of visualization and financialization and destruction in its many forms. Like, do you do you see that as potentially sort of taking on a new life, um, you know, potentially in the future, you know, depending on depending on what Lebanon's future looks like? You know, the, the funny thing about real estate scams is they have an end date, Right even if they promise to go on forever or have to keep acting as if they will go on forever to maintain enough momentum to keep going. Like the contemporary moment is marked by problems exacerbated by the post-war consensus. It's, I, I hesitate to speculate because most people's minds right now seem to be primarily on flight or survival. Like everyone who I talk to, that's what it seems to be about. There's, there's a real tear in the social fabric and I don't quite know how to make sense of what happens when people live in this kind of liminality, right? When you have something like a revolution, which is put down essentially by saying, if you're, unless you're ready to go to a civil war, uh, go home. And then we have a, a basically like a complete COVID lockdown to cement that. What will happen with ruining? So for, for example, the, um, Lebanon has a new tourist, so in an attempt to sort of bring tourist money back to the country, they have a new tourist campaign that talks all about love. And, um, you know, an acquaintance of mine in Lebanon sort of uh, scoffed at the at the contradiction of here's here's the government trying to be like, uh, um, use these visuals and discourses of love. Meanwhile, he posts something on social media talking about how he has to leave because there's no more love. Um 
and sort of that relationship. And he ended up, he recently moved to the Gulf. Um, and so it, there's, you know, that to me, that to me was just sort of an example of new, new forms of visualization that may emerge um, in an attempt by the government to sort of try and heal or recuperate or create new kinds of figures to try and bring, you know, money and activity back into the country. You know, it's despite the fact that everyone is still sort of in a, a, a mode of dismantling in some ways, like life sort of taking flight. You know, it's, it's, it's funny, right? You, you think of like thinking about Lebanon and love right now, and it seems not just patently absurd, but like bizarrely disconnected. And that's the moment where we have to ask the question, who does this, who is this campaign made for? And what work does, does this language do for the institutions that produce it? Right. What, like, what does talking about Lebanon and love do for the ministry of tourism? Right. What does it say about who they are trying to speak to? These people who, for whom, you know, being attached to Yaharam Lebanon, oh, this, who try to hold on to like this pure kernel of some of nostalgic attachment, which gets figured in these heavily affective, very charged terms. Uh, you know, I think that the grammar of clean architectural renderings and techno solutionism is going to have some future in the city. Um, but I think how they play to hope and allegiance will work somewhat differently given the, the contemporary terrain. I think it's important to remember that like the solid air plan began work without convincing a national public, right? People hated solid air. It was hotly contested uh, in the mid nineties. Um, governing without public consent has a long tradition um, in liberal democracy and in Lebanon in particular, right? I, th I think that uh, the, the, the point about the before after image and ruination is not that time will reverse and will return to the war, which still retains, I think, just even after the port blast of 2020, still remains like a major specter, it's a major reference point. The point is that things were always already changing, that the city was always already incomplete, that, that forward historical movement without contingency is snake oil, that there were always other possibilities that could have been. They tie it. To, they tie malleability to ruination. We can make it mean something else. Um, I do. I do love how you you end the book again, raising the question, or or even just advising readers. Hey, you know, other possibilities are always possible at these junctures, or even in that you know that incompleteness that you say is just always in the process of being attempted to being complete, right? There's always an opportunity to sort of take it in a different direction. Um, so on that note, just to sort of, uh, you know, get some wider reflections on the text, are there any materials that, um, you know, any visual materials that you would have liked to have included in the text, but had to leave by the wayside? What is the stuff that I left out that I wish I could have kept in? You know, there's... Uh, a lot of talk TV in mid 1990s Beirut, that I think would have uh, could have been a, a really fascinating chapter in its own right to talk about a relationship to like how people were living in the city and then this this new set of social relations and consumer experiences, 
how that appeared on talk TV was really interesting at the time, right? Lebanese TV really transforms in, in the 1990s. So there's a chapter which could have been about that. There could have also been, if, if I were a different person, a chapter about um, Al-Manar's programming in the wake of the 2006 war and its mobilization of the specter of history, looking to historical examples, to uh, a Shia uh, a, a Shia religious tradition, um, which in, in some ways equate attention to the image and attention to the broadcast with bearing witness that would have been really rich to add in as well. There could have, of course, been a, a, a corollary chapter to that, which would have looked at like what actually, like not just like the images and analyzing programming and shows, but like what actual people thought, right? It's one thing to analyze the program. It's another thing to analyze the audience. There's only so much you can do. There's only so many balls that you can effectively juggle. And this book already juggles uh, a lot of balls between theory, uh, between media theory and media infrastructure, urban studies, uh, thinking about visual culture and visuality. Uh, and holding- and it, does, mm-hmm. it does so successfully. It doesn't, you know, to make your point, you don't need anything more, right? Um, everything else would just be sort of a gift to the reader. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so what's your favorite part of the book? My favorite parts of the book, uh, would have to be those moments where I talk about the contingency in the archive of when, in that chapter on maps, when I, when I find how and where, like, Oh, like here's this totalizing sense of the, of the nation and the city that we get from the map. And here's what happens with the actual urban planning process that it's a part of. It like completely gets outflanked by real estate interests or the contradictions of the French mandate make it so instead of having a seven point star, they have a five and a half point star. These are the moments that I find the most, that's one of the moments that I find the most interesting. The before after image and the citizen investor writing that and researching that part was sort of clarifying for me. I felt that this was a moment where I was like, okay, here and now I've actually gotten onto something. Urban studies folks who I draw from, I've you know, really figured out really profound insights about what happens in this period and its relationship to uh, broader global trends at the time. But this, this way of thinking about images is something that I, that I think is maybe the, one of the more useful contributions to the book. The stuff about concealment, I, I, do not tire uh, from from hearing. Uh, I do not tire from talking about it. It's one of those things where people from a range of backgrounds, academic interests, or even non-academics who are just interested in the subject or or, or who have wandered into uh, like a talk that I've given online, they see they seize on that as well. It seems to speak to uh, a tacit level of understanding about our, how we live with media how we live in relation to visual relations that escapes, I think, a lot of uh, a lot of how we talk about images and media. Those are my, those are my favorite parts. Uh, Great. And have um, has writing the book led to any new research questions or areas that you're interested in pursuing in the future? You know, it's, it's maybe a, a truism of academics that we always think our next project is going to be the really good one. And the one that we worked on is passable if, if that, or worse than that. Uh, working on this has want, has led me to 
to want to write not from the perspective of how are images useful to power, but how are images part of a very contested terrain? I want to write a media history of the Arab street, a genealogical treatment of protest movements and attempts to manage and, and talk about political passions, presumably expressed in an inappropriate manner. There's one version of uh, uh, media history of the Arab street, which is like, let's look at the racist caricatures about Arab political life. And you could trace this from the Ottomans going forward, right? I want to think about the Arab street as shaped by at least two other factors. The first being the practices of protest movements, some of which spoke in a grammar of revolution or democracy, some in a language of Islamic justice. But also, I want to talk. I want to think about the Arab Street as shaped by the mediated circulation that defines it. It were, it looks. It's one thing when it appears in like newsreel in the interwar period. It looks very different when uh, people are imagining people listening to Gamal Abdel Nasser's radio broadcasts. It looks very different when we think about the viralities which presumably caused the Arab uprisings of 2011. Each of these moments, though, I think give, give us a deep insight into media technology, race, and space, kind of like these deep abiding concerns that I have. Great. Sounds great. I look forward to reading it one day. Um, do you have any final thoughts that you want to share? You know, I, I hope that this book finds multiple audiences because it drew from the generous, bounteous gifts of a number of different fields. Like, I, I really do hope that uh, people who are interested in media will think about it. People who are interested in the Arab world and Lebanon will will find something useful in it. And that urban studies folks uh, more broadly, um, who may or may not be interested in those other two things, will also um, find something useful in it. Um, but yeah, those, that's like my, my last hopes. Great. Well, thanks. It's been a real pleasure uh, having a conversation. Thank you so much, Matthew. It's been really great.